Well, again, good morning. So we certainly come to this text, and perhaps never since in my life, at least as an adult, has there been more focus on justice. And of course, I think that's a good thing. Um, you know, I think it was, what, five years ago, six years ago, when um, we were entering into an election season, I brought to you in a sermon several times, actually, the an article uh, by, in The Atlantic uh, entitled The Two Americas. At the time that I brought it up, I was thinking especially of the Me Too movement and wanting to be careful that we listen uh, to the Me Too movement, particularly in light of some of the political rhetoric and all that was going around. And, you know, and this article just asked the question, you know, what, what would justice look like? And, and the two Americas. And by that, what this writer meant was, of course, that if you think about uh, the frame, and this is not a, a jab at the frame, at all, a phrase at all, but, you know, make America great again, you know, he acknowledges that to many in the country, that phrase would resonate with a, with a very resounding amen. Those who, and not, any, not anything wrong about that, um, those who experienced America, in a way that remembers uh, the factory and the village and the flourishing of the town and on and on it goes, the community, etc. But then, of course, if you were to ask other segments of America, you know, do you want to make America great again? They look back in the history and they see a very different reality, uh, a reality where they did not enjoy freedoms and privileges that they even do now and want to for the future. And it's interesting in the years after that article how we have if you stop and think about it, there's been two massive, massive counter-shaking movements, both of which are movements that seek justice, whether it's the Me Too movement or now the uh, Black Lives Matter movement, if you will, particularly in its you know, original sense of that word or that phrase. And so we come to this issue of justice, and in God's providence, I didn't order it, um, we come to this passage. You remember that Christ has been speaking especially about this problem of pretender righteousness. And he's been applying it to everything from prayers to fastings to everything. You know, we went through the Lord's Prayer, uh, particularly part one, part two, and we begin to see that this pretender righteousness is a kind of righteousness that, that is false. It's not that they're it's not that they are, they know what righteousness is necessarily and they're not doing it. It's that it's a pretender. It's a fake righteousness. Now, what makes it fake? Well, over and over and over again, it's been shown that what makes it fake is when it's self-righteous. That is a righteousness that is derived from one's own perspective, from one's own opportunity or needs or situation or history. You could go right through the, the list. And therefore, over and over again, you know, righteousness is not that which is to my gratification or to my personal well-being. Righteousness has to have another standard, even if it might very well come back to my personal well-being. Righteousness has a standard over and over and over again. You know, pray, but, but pray with God as your hearer when you pray. Pray according to God's interest when you pray. Fast, but pressed in secret, so that God sees in secret, and your reward will be great. But pray in order to get a, a reaction from the crowd or from the people or for whatever, uh, who you're trying to please for your own self-interest. That's not a righteous prayer. 
And he would go on and on about that. And so we come to this incredible passage, and yes, it's, you know, it would be remiss of me not to, it, for me to pretend that this passage is, is not in God's providence chosen for us today at this moment uh, with a serious and much needed interest in justice. And of course, I then eagerly look at how this phrase has been used by others who were seeking justice in the same manner. And of course, our go-to would be Martin Luther King. And it's interesting that, that as I research, we don't have a, a recording of this. It was way back in uh, 1949, but we do have his handwritten uh, notes, and they are in archives. And, and this sermon was preached by Martin Luther King on July 24th, 1949, at the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia the title being Splinters and Planks. His translation was of Moffat, which is a more modern translation, but is in, it's in absolute accord with the original text. I looked at it pretty carefully this week, and it reads like this. Why do you note the splinter in your brother's eye and fail to see the plank in your own eye? The translation that put a more modern context to it perhaps but also which fit well into something he wanted to say. That is to say that while splinters are small, they can cause great pain. While planks are big, they can disrupt great trucks if hit on a street, he would argue. The idea being that these things are equally powerful, and yet at the same time, these things that he's using, that the Lord is using my metaphor, some of which are seen and some of which are not seen. And of course, his point being what is not seen here is that small, tiny splinter that could be in your eye or perhaps you know is in your hand. And you can see it, but boy, do you feel it. It's a blindness splinter. He says then about this modern translation, we know splinters. We frequently run through them through our fingers. Sometimes they are so small that we can hardly see them. Moreover, we know planks. We know that in many instances a plank is large enough to stop a streetcar. This figure of speech used by Jesus might seem for the moment to be quite exaggerated. But if we stop for the moment and analyze human actions with a disinterested eye, that's the key word, a dispassionate, disinterested, a kind of step back, look at it, from the vantage point of truth from God, we will find that this contrast is not big enough. For it is a common human trait to see the weakness or the sins of others and never to see one's own weaknesses or sins. King applied it then, of course, to the civil rights movement in his day, but in a way that was at least for me quite unexpected, if perfectly in accord with this passage. That is, it was not inconsistent. That God would give us then a surprise, maybe not a very happy surprise, but a surprise, but not inconsistent moment in this sermon today. I'm praying for that for myself as I've been reflecting on this passage all week, and I'm praying that for all of us, that we would hear God speak into our present context. Let's pray. So, Lord, thank you for your word, how it intercepts us in our daily busyness, our daily lives, our daily patterns, the ebb and flows, the habits, the social habits, even within the context of all the, the rhetoric both ways and 
All the judgments. Yes, Lord, the judgments. Judgments flying everywhere. We need to be intercepted by you. Stopped in our tracks. Lord, help us to stop and think from the context of your holy, transcendent word. Help us to think about ourselves in this context. Teach us, Lord, knowing that your way is the way of love, the way of prosperity and peace, the way of eternal life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, at first glance, you start the passage, and again, judge not that you shall not that you be not judged. And immediately, and it's always often the case, we learn to memorize scripture in single sentences when the scripture is hardly ever written in single sentences. At the very least, it's written in paragraphs, if not in a whole narratives and stories that can cover pages of, of, of you know, pages and pages. But, but here would be a real uh, temptation, wouldn't it? Judge not lest you be judged, which feeds right into the tolerance philosophy of post-enlightenment individualism. And there it is. It's not our job to make judgments. Well... Notice what he says. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. Now, there's a little nuance. For with the kind of judgment, you see, the judgment, with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, what measure? What's, that's the word standard. That would be the word that eventually translates canon. What standard of measure will you use in your judgment? In other words, don't judge. That is not the point. First Thessalonians 5, do not despise the words of the prophets, but test or judge everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. We are called by Christians to make judgments all the time, aren't we? To judge what is good versus evil. 1 Corinthians 2, the spiritual person judges all things but and himself to be judged by no one. What's going on there? The context, of course, is that we are to be making judgments. We are to submit all things as captive to the lordship of Christ, taking every word captive to his thoughts, every action, every statement captive to Christ's thoughts, as he'll go on to say in the same book. And yet here there's a kind of judgment where we're to hold that we're to judge all things, but in himself to be judged by no one. That is to say that we judge before God. That's the key. That's what Jesus has been talking about through this whole Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's always got to stop, start and stop with God. Is it a God's judgment or is it my judgment? I mean, it really goes back to the, the fall. I mean, what is the original sin? Well, it's that we want to be the judge between good and evil. And we therefore become self-righteous in that moment of history. That is, righteous as a standard from which we judge. It derives from our perspective. It derives from our interest. It derives from me, 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 me. However me is defined. It goes on and on uh, about this. We're called in 1 Corinthians 5, the church is called to make judgments concerning a person's uh, uh, innocence or, or guilt in church, area, in church discipline. And so therefore, assuming the unity of Scripture, this can't mean don't make judgments. 
It can't mean that we ought to wait until we ourselves are perfect and faultless ourselves even before we make judgments or correct wrongs. Indeed, these passages are given to sinners, people yet to be glorified in heaven. It can't mean that there ought not to be a church or a civil court whereby judgments are made and corrected and corrective discipline is exercised. Clearly, we see both in the, script, in the scripture that both the church and the state, though very different censors, very different powers, even very different books of revelation, one common revelation in all of nature and one special revelation in scripture, the church, that both the church and the state are called to seek justice within its own institutional manners and within its own institutional purposes. The state, justice for the common good. The church, justice on behalf of Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so clearly, don't misunderstand the passage by isolating the first verse from the rest of them. And notice this particular clue then. What is the problem here for Christ? The clue here is verse 5. What makes this person a hypocrite? You see, this is the point. He, he makes the case that he's speaking to those whom he's been speaking to as described as hypocrites. Now, does judging make you a hypocrite? We just said no. Or does the kind of judgment, false judgment, make you a hypocrite? Yes, that's the problem. The problem is that they don't see clearly, that they see in a manner that is self-interested and biased according to their own perspective in a way that can't see, then, true justice at all. Notice several evidences. Verse 2, for with the judgment you make, you will be judged, and with the measure you give will be the measure you get. The text here is very clear, and it references, if you've been working through the book of Matthew with us, it is a logic now. It's really the first, I've, I've preached this book before, and it's really the first time I saw how prominent this logic is. I've already seen it. I've already pointed it out to you in previous passages. But it's a logic that has caused a lot of confusion. Because it seems like it's a logic of self-justification. Judge not lest you be judged. Now, how does that fit the gospel? You mean to say that if I'm guilty of making false judgments, then I'm going to hell? What about all those passages earlier where we said, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So my reward now is predicated on me perfecting the law of God in my own righteousness with respect to my prayer life? That if I'm guilty sometimes of praying in order that you might and be praying and be thinking to myself, I wonder what they're thinking of me when I'm praying. And I don't think anyone has prayed and not thought that. Or maybe you're just really a wonderful, more purpose than I am. But there are times when I'm praying and I'm thinking, oh, what are they thinking? Oh, and then I have to regret, oh, God, this is a prayer to you, remember? No, this is you. This is it. You're the only guy I'm praying to. But we, we do that. Is he saying, though, that we can't go to heaven and we're going to be condemned guilty because of this struggle to be, in effect, self-righteous? This is, again, where we have to be careful. The reward you see he's making, the, the, the logic is going on and on. That's not the first time. I can read more text. I have him here. Matthew 6, 2, Matthew 6, 4, Matthew 6, 5. They keep talking about it. He says, and I say to you, they will receive their reward for this false righteousness. And 
the implication is very clear from the context. You will get your reward. <laughs> it will not be the reward you were looking for. You will get the reward of, of an immediate gratification. You might get the crowd to follow you. You might get all kinds of perks and privileges in this world for your false judgments because this world system has systematically made those sorts of behaviors somehow good that are really not good. So you may be rewarded, but you'll get your reward in kind. Do you understand what he's saying? Your reward in kind. You seeking worldly pleasure? Seeking worldly applause? Seeking worldly fame? Well, you may get that. But then he'll go on to say, but you will not receive the reward of God. He says it very clearly. You and your father who sees in secret. Three times in chapter 6, right before this passage, he's emphasized this in secret perspective versus the open perspective that we might have in this world. That's the righteousness we need to be seeking. A secret righteousness, if according to the wisdom of this world, a righteousness not of this world, as he'll say later in Matthew and so the point here, and not to forget, that what Paul is, I mean, what, what Jesus is saying here, you shall be judged with respect to that measure which you measure that you will be judged. He's trying to say, look, you want to walk according to the law of God and then try to, write, to, to justify yourself by keeping the law perfectly in order to gain the promise that God gave you in creation, which is eternal life? That would be a bad way of life. Now, let me try to make sure you're hearing me here. There's a lot of ways and cliches we've said that. We're, not saved by, we're saved by grace through faith alone, not of ourselves, lest what, it be uh, uh, we could boast. You know, the idea of self-righteousness is very closely tied to a program or a project which seeks to self-justify to God. When we try to do that, which was, according to the Old Testament law, as a, a, applied to outward benefits of Israel, if we were to be confused with the law, and we were to think that we should be perfect according to the law in order that we might be saved from God, then that kind of logic is self-righteous or self-justification logic. See, the purpose of the law, we've said it many times here, the purpose of the law, according to Paul in Romans 7, was that the law would, in effect, exasperate us to confess. The law would exasperate us to go into the temple that was also part of the law, where we would confess, God, have mercy upon me. Not God, look at my righteousness and judge me to be righteous according to the law that I might be saved. No, 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 no. That kind of righteousness is self-righteousness. Righteousness that I am depending and relying upon myself to attain. And that's driving the whole problem here in, the, in Matthew. Remember that Matthew is an introduction of Christ as Christ enters into the Jewish context of that day. 
It's hard. I've said this in the hermeneutics class that we teach here, that perhaps the most misunderstood passages of all the scripture is the Sermon on the Mount. Because what Christ is doing is he's holding these who are dependent on, on who are self-reliant upon, upon their keeping the law, he's holding them accountable to that and exasperating the living daylights out of them. You have heard it said, and I tell you, your law, man, if you really want to be satisfying the law in order for you to be saved, rather than looking and praying for the Messiah, the bread of life that we heard about in the prayer, if you really want to save yourself that way, well, let me tell you a little bit more about the law. <laughs> it's not just taking a pistol and killing somebody when you murder. It's, it's an inward spirit. It's, it's an attitude. It's a motivation. It's a value system. It's the sins of omission and the sins of commission. It's, it's not just that we, don't, that we don't kill people. It's that we're intended to do the opposite. We're to love and to give life to people. Whenever we fail to give life to people by our words, according to Ephesians 4, we fail the commandment, thou shalt not kill, because we kill people's spirits. This is an incredible, important thing here. Let's just be honest. I know this goes counter somehow, but, but this is the point. He's clearly not saying here, nor is he saying that in prayer and the other places where it's said, and people have raised the question, you mean if we don't forgive, then we're not going to be forgiven? Yeah, according to the law, which is why we cry out, God, have mercy. Forgive me as Christ has fulfilled the law, as Christ has forgiven all people, regardless and indistinct. Save me for Christ's works of forgiveness as I've been the recipient. And that's where this whole Matthew gospel is going. It's taking us to the cross where we are all in need of an atonement for our sins, not a stamp of approval for our righteousness as if we have enough righteousness to be saved by it. We're moving to the cross where atonement will be made and the free gift of God is given to those who would humble themselves and confess their sins. So here we have this amazing passage, this kind of first point, that is to say that, that if we are going to be judges, if we're going to act ourselves to be self-righteous judges, then by gosh, the standard, and the only standard that we can judge by is not our own perspective and our own values and our own interests. It's got to be the standard of judgment being condemned and not making judgments in themselves. It's the standard of God's law. God's righteousness is revealed through his holy scripture. Scripture has to always be there. For the Christian, you can't make a judgment, except that I can point to scripture and say it is condemned. That's crucial. Not just that, we can't make a judgment until we can say that is condemned in scripture, and here through a due process of interacting and cross-examining, we can discern that you, in fact, have failed that command, and you're guilty. That's how we do it in the Scripture, just as much as in the common courts. So we come now to this splinter and plank analogy. Here, then, he has it. Why do you seek the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let, us, let me make the speck out of your eye when there is such a big log in your own? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will clearly take the speck out of your brother's eye. What is condemned here again is it, it is condemned that our judgment of others is informed by our lack of judgment 
against ourselves. How can you say, he says, dot, 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 when there is a big log in your own eye? He's trying to say that if you start from the perspective of conceding your own life and your own sin and your own perspective as if it is neutral or not sinful, then you've already, phase one, lost your way as a judge. Second level. It is condemned that we are more concerned about the sin in another as we are in ourselves, even as we are most responsible for ourselves. There's a kind of hypocrisy here, according to Christ. How is it that the sin that is so close to you, you're blind to, and the sin that is far from you, you're, you're so awakened to? You see the kind of logic that's going on here? Third level. It is condemned that we can't see clearly to make right judgments until we have discerned our own context for sin. And the fourth level, taken where we've come, self-righteousness or pretender righteousness is condemned. That is, our standard for making judgments is self-centered versus God-centered. Assuming our standard and circumstances to be sufficient for making judgments upon others. And therefore, again, the condemnation. You hypocrites. Always, always, always. No one here is excluded. First, first, before you point the finger, do a serious gut check. Take the log out of your own eye that you might see clearly. The corrective is not to be perfect before you make judgments, but to remove a self-righteous standard that we can then go back to the scripture and we can go to a brother or sister or to a system or to a world and bring it to bear. You know, this is an incredible passage. Um, it's clearly reflected in, in the ministry of Paul. He, he was facing what I know you know I've said before, but an incredible schism in the church. A schism between Jews and Greeks. There were councils about it. There was, I mean, it was a huge huge ordeal. And yeah, there would be these sort of uh, symbol actions, symbol situations, but the gist of it, as beginning in Romans 14 illustrates, is they were unable to welcome one another with, with the same privileges and rights as each other into the church of Jesus Christ. That there was prejudice, there was favoritism, there was partiality, and these, these prejudices and these partialities stemming from, from the perspective of a Hebrew versus a Greek and how a Hebrew would discern Sabbath days versus a Greek would discern Sabbath days and how a Hebrew would discern meats offered to idols versus a, a, a Greek would offer meats offered to idols and how these things became means by which people were being excluded from the fellowship of Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the brotherhood and the sisterhood at the Lord's table. These were big issues. And I've said it many times, but if you really want to understand this passage as it now works out in a new covenant context, I would encourage you to read Romans 14. You see, in the point of Romans 14 was that people were imposing their own self-righteous standards, albeit Greek-oriented foods or Hebrew-oriented Sabbaths. And in each, what they were doing, now listen to this, what they were doing is that each was saying, now, for me, someone who has has practiced idolatry in the, in the, in the, in the uh, rituals assigned to idolatry, say a Greek, for me, I need to break with that food. 
I need to stop eating meats offered to idols. To the Hebrew, they're saying, I don't, I never, I've never dealt with idolatry in the way that you're dealing with it here, in this particular way, I'm saying. They all have, we all have idols. I see no problem with me eating that meat, you know. In uh, the same way with the Sabbath, the, the Hebrew, oh, this Sabbath, these Sabbath days, these Sabbath days. And Paul said, man, he's not talking about the Lord's Day here. He's talking about all the, the, the Jubilee years and all those things that were coming about and all the various days that actually have been added to the Scripture after Maccabees. And, and he's saying, you know, hold it here. These things don't continue with Christ in the world now. This, this aspect of the ceremonial laws that were in the Old Testament, they don't apply now. Now, you can be a Jew. Paul, remember, he said, I'll be all things to all people. As a Greek, I'll go and, and, work and, and celebrate the Lord with them and their family table, and we won't eat these foods. With a Hebrew, I will perhaps go. Is you can still practice certain rituals as long as these are not rituals, maybe derived from your Hebrew past, that would, but as long as they're not rituals that became sacred or non-negotiables, if you will, in terms of your relationship to God in Christ. There's an incredible gray here, is the point. A gray that required Paul to get deep into the perspectives of the Greek and the Hebrew. From the Greek perspective, he would say, this is a sin. From the Greek Hebrew perspective, he would say, this is a sin. From the Greek perspective, he would say, this isn't a sin. From the Greek Hebrew perspective, he would say, this isn't a sin. And we listen to that in our own little simple, simplistic, fundamentalistic Christianity. And fundamentalistic Christianity can be progressive and it can be conservative. But fundamentalism is the idea of reducing things to a very simplistic, fundamental kind of a point. And, and negating the beautiful nuance of the gospel that brings into the picture the truth. And so you see this level. The fifth level of this passage then is Certainly a, a prohibition against censorious and fault-finding spirit. If you will, the passage speaks against that kind of spirituality that, that, that positions itself to be censorious. Censorious, I should say. Or, or, or a kind of fault-finding rather than, what does the gospel want to say? The gospel is, is oriented towards grace, towards mercy, in the way that we deal with others. But why be unmerciful and gracious to others? Because, again, we ourselves are not experiencing mercy or grace, is the argument of Paul, and the argument of Jesus. Those who have not experienced, why do we forgive, according to Paul? Anybody could tell me, I think, or many who know the scripture. They'd say, well, of course, we forgive because we've been first forgiven. We love because he first loved us. Do you see the logic of that? We don't love in order to be loved by God. We don't forgive in order to be forgiven by God. We love because we have been loved and forgiven by God. And that's the point here. Judge not, and you will not be judged, says James. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Is the point, you do this in order to do this? No, he'll go on to explain. That those who are censorious, that he's making a point. You want to examine yourself. Are you living according to, to, the, to the spirit of the gospel or the spirit of the law of self-righteousness? And he's saying the latter. And so there's a great warning here. The warning again. Those who judge falsely is related to their still being self-reliant before God as to trust their own perspective of righteousness 
versus those whose righteousness is fulfilled on their behalf by Christ, who now, set free from the fear of condemnation and rejection, are set free to forgive, are set free not to prove their righteousness by virtue of finding faults in others. Yes, to be discerning. Yes, to make judgments. But in a way that wants to lead people to the grace of the gospel, to give them life. Not in a way that would lead them to condemnation. Not, not as Christians. Now again, I want to be careful. Just remember, we're talking about the gospel here. We're talking about the Christian. We're talking about the church. Certainly, there is a kind of justice in the state that needs to have serious and real uh, punishments. In fact, the passage is clear about that in Romans 13. It's the vengeance of God, it's even described, against injustice. There needs to be that vengeance. But with that vengeance in the civil sphere is the offering of the grace of the gospel in the church sphere. Yes, go to jail. Pay your due. Yes, make, make you know, rep- recompense. Yes, you know, repair what you've done. But receive the gospel of Jesus Christ that you might have eternal life. Well, let me transition there to this amazing take home as we think about this passage. Who among us today is really here in this passage? Are you? What test would we offer? Well, here it is. Have you been thinking about through this whole sermon? Have you been thinking about how this passage applies to yourself? Or have you been thinking about some rival or someone perceived as your adversary or someone in, that you're in an adversarial conversation with for generally or even in a specific situation. Judge not lest you be judged and you are thinking, yes, I feel vindicated. Hmm. You see, those whose ears are deaf and eyes blind to this passage are probably hearing this passage as related to their rivals or adversaries. As applicable to someone who there is some manner of contention or friction with, for whatever reason. I could hear it now. One generation is related to another generation. A parent is related to their rebellious teenager. A teenager against their insensitive and stern parent. I hope my mom's hearing that. <laughs> I hope my son's hearing that. A boomer related to those millennials, or millennial is related to those boomers, and all the stereotypes and judgments that we've made against each other, that are, many of which are slanderous, if they're moral in nature. To, to accuse someone of being morally guilty is a serious thing in Scripture. We have to be careful. Maybe it's a spouse in a contention with the other spouse, Oh, I'm hoping she heard that. All that negativity and judgment that's been coming at me. Or one gender is related to another gender, such as to judge motives, actions, attitudes, values, etc. According, from my perspective, what I perceive the under, other gender to be. One race, of course, as related to another race. Such as to judge motives and actions and attitudes and values according to my perspective. I mean, think about it. This is how it all began. 
profiling and making judgment statements and characterizing people according to their ethnicity or their gender or their age and and with that making judgments and judgments that if, if, if even the person were to defend themselves would be an actual proof that their judgment was correct and their self-reliance. And you see, there's no chance for reconciliation in such an environment. So what would repentance look like? How do we know? Well, here I want to take you back to that surprise but consistent reaction by Martin Luther King. You see, in his handwritten sermon, King suggests that acknowledging one's own shortcomings before judgment of others is essential. First, speaking to a congregation of Americans, he applied this principle to the area of international affairs and race relations, noting, quote, while we see the splinters in Russia's eye, remember this is before communist China and all that, we fail to see the great plank of racial segregation and discrimination which is blocking the progress of America. Right there, I'm going, okay, baby, he's about to go for it. He's, he's going for it. Here it comes. Right? Right here. What would you expect to come next in this present era? Who's going to be condemned? Yes, a condemnation, understandably, of the white majority and the many ways that we have judged our black brothers for the problems of, rather than judging ourselves for the problems, that would have been a just and fair application. Even today, we see this. It's where it all began. The judgments that the majority have made against the minority, particularly that particular minority whose history was, unlike any other immigrant, a forced history with America. Sometimes we always forget that. Even today, when there is white resistance to the concept of white privilege, there's almost always a subtle, if not so subtle, judgment upon some problem with the black community, perhaps a judgment against their work ethic, their violence, whatever it is. And if only they could be good neighbors, then all would be fine. Often we'll be reminded how we are all immigrants, our forefathers, mothers, how they came and participated in the American dream by their hard work. Civil rights laws have happened, of course. So what's the problem? Hmm. Of course, the problem is there's no regard in that judgment for how, with minor exceptions, this, is other, this, this particular other ethnicity that was forced to come here and how this sets into motion all sorts of serious systemic issues. No regard for how slavery led to great wealth for one race while resulting in great poverty without any capital or assets afterwards to have any empowerment with after slavery, particularly regard the Jim Crow laws that un annulled whatever reconstruction and, and reparation that had been planned originally after the war. No regard for how the welfare state impacted one's sense of empowerment, especially as related to the black man and his ability to be self-sufficient when, when no matter what the job he made, and I know this from firsthand experience working five years in the inner city, there's no way that man could make as much as the welfare state could, could pay that unwed mother and took him right out of the picture. How does that impact a man? The context. And even to this day, no regard for how then the white race judges the black race from their own perspective informed by their own history and context, etc. You see, I was expecting that from Martin Luther King. All into the context now of a sermon in Atlanta in 1949 after speaking to the judgmental and censorious attitude to his congregation as related to this text. Why couldn't he have taken it there? 
but he didn't. Here's his quote. It, it moves me. He looks to his congregation who have been oppressed, and he says, Negroes, you need to see the splinter. You see the splinters in the white man's eye, and you fail to see the planks in their own eye. Now, I understand that I can't probably say that. Maybe I shouldn't as a white man. Now, I'm a preacher of the gospel right now. I'm in office, and I try to keep there. I'm not a white man right now, but I suspect nobody can really trust that. Clearly, though, I am speaking to a congregation that's, well, it's multiracial, but predominantly white, then Asian of various kinds, and then a minimal, though we pray for more, African-American. Where would I turn? Well, I would turn to us and say, if you're hearing this sermon, before you are censorious against the Black Lives Matter movement in a way they're making you feel uncomfortable, before you're censorious, censorious I can't say that word, can I? Before we start there, let's look at my own perspective. Let's judge my own heart with the Holy Scripture. And to help us do that, I want to give some incredible advice here. Advice that was given to me through a pastor named uh, Todd, um, Todd Foster, who used to be the, he was the founder of, uh, of the Church on the Rock here in New Haven and used to be the pastor there. And this is, this is counsel that he gave to his uh, protege, who's now the pastor, a really wonderful man named Jason. Both are good friends of mine. I've worked with both of them. Todd particularly, if you know about Todd, he's been deeply involved in social justice issues in this city, um, both as a pastor but, but also not as a pastor. Probably one of the more seasoned Christian social justice people I know in this city. And he basically um, said, okay, how do you apply he didn't say this passage. He didn't have this passage in mind. But here's his advice. These are things to consider before landing hard on a particular judgment or a side of a controversial issue. I'm going to read them all, and then I'm going to say a few comments about them quickly. But here's what he wrote in his words. You want to judge rightly? You want to land on the right side in these controversial times? Number one. Be armed with truth and don't run off of pure emotion. Research deeper than Facebook and other people's opinions. Amen. Number two, don't write off or ignore proven truths that don't support your position. Look for truth, not alternative facts. Stop there. Call gray areas gray, not black or white. Incorporate as much complete truth and to your posture as possible. Number three, endeavor to empathize with, not agree with, parenthesis, opposing views. Endeavor to empathize with opposing views. Where are they coming from? What lifelong road did they take to get to their conclusions? Empathize with that. Number four, sometimes we need to be educators as people, but often don't have a clue, but always be educatable. 
no matter how much you think you know. Number five, don't suggest that you have no common ground with someone you disagree with. We all want to be loved, respected, and heard. We are all human. Six, be clear in your own mind as to what a negotiable and what is not negotiable. Again, looking for the standard. And finally, he says, number seven, and he says, and finally, when they go low, eclipse it, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> when they go low, we go high. Let's briefly, just really in closing, just briefly look at this. I'll take the first two together. Be armed with truth. Don't run off on pure emotion. Don't write off or ignore proven truths that don't support your position, etc. Clearly, this is consistent with Scripture. Proverbs 18.7, the one who takes, first takes a case seems right until someone else comes and cross-examines. This proverb originated in a context of seeking justice at the gate there where justice would have been done in ancient Israel. There is a kind of right according to the law that needs to be discerned in the consequences and circumstances of a person's life. That's why there is this examination and cross-examination, due process kind of a thing. And, and I'm not saying this. I totally get why some in our country have great fear of grand juries and great fear of this due diligence and the way in which a lot of evil, if you, if you want to get into the other shoes, white person, go look at the history of land grabs, and I could go on and on and on at how procedures after procedures after procedures robbed, robbed a whole people of their inheritance over and over. And that's just one example. Go down and look at what's happened, what happened in South Carolina after the war, after years of flourishing when the big uh, entertainment giants wanted the land by the sea. It's, it would make you sick to your stomach. I could go on and on. And so we've got to call that out. What are we looking for here? But we got to do due diligence. It's Todd's point. We got to go deeper. We got to take the time to find the truth, whatever it takes. And so we understand that very important wisdom from God. This third one, we just did one and two, three, a, a comment. Notice, endeavor to empathize with, not agree with, opposing views. Where are they coming from? What lifelong road did they take to get to their conclusions? This is so important. Just as much as there are, you could say, two Americas, there's not just two Americas, there's about ten Americas if you include all ethnos, which have their own history, which all need to be respected. I want to say that very clearly. Very different histories, all, all ten or however many there are. Each one, though, every one of us, white, to, you know, I'll go right through it. There is a perspective that will skew justice if we don't discern it, especially how it is perceived by those we want to reconcile with. I can't tell you, I want to say it every week I'm here, the evil that I saw growing up, especially as I worked and went to high school in an absolutely racially, racially, racially mixed situation, was the evil... Not of, a, not of a theoretical, unequal, before God kind of a theory. I never really encountered that, 
honestly. What I encountered was separate be equal. The evil of, of generalizing and categorizing and making judgments about one another, profiling, whatever word you want to use in ways that were morally reprehensible in many cases. I mean, to, to profile someone as lazy, you're calling this person a sinner. To, to, to profile someone as is, is abusive or whatever. These are very packed words and, and they have context and we have to go listen and ask, you know, you know before we conclude that this, if this action were my action, it would mean this. Well, maybe this action, given their perspective, doesn't mean this. And you gotta listen, really listen. And you can't do that except that you get desegregated. I use the word desegregation not just about policies in the country. I use desegregation here about what it means for Christians to be reconciled by being together and knowing one another as humans and then as Christians, and then we might see the truth. There were so many generalizations and profiles that were systematically blown up when I finally experienced five years of intensive desegregation where I walked away from that experience and going, that's not true, that's not true, that's not true. I know very many people that doesn't fit that characterization. And I know my black friends would say the same thing about us whites. We used to laugh about it. I can't say it enough. We need to listen. We need to find ways to listen. And that doesn't go just one way. Finally, don't suggest that you have no common ground with someone you disagree with, especially as a Christian. Not only do we hold a humanity with others so that we know that all of us were fearfully and wonderfully made, therefore all of us were fully human with no distinction as to whatever privileges and rights that we ought to have. See, again, that equal but not separate thing created a thing called race, which I think is a, an idolatrous word. Race that's sort of akin to breed. Breeds that are made for certain functions versus other functions. And off you go into all the crap that we've seen. We need to see that that's just not true. To be white is not to be a German shepherd. And to be black is not to be a poodle or whatever. You know, I mean, these are just crazy things. No, we're, no distinction was Paul's argument. Not just equality before God, but no distinction. It's very important as Christians that we remember that. But also in Christ, especially in Christ, we see people very differently as through the power of suffering and bearing one's cross and bearing and sharing in the bearing of others' crosses. You see, the thing about the cross is this. It's, it's a no discrimination uh, mandate. He looks to all Christians everywhere of all races and classes and genders and says, follow me and bear the cross, of, of, uh, bear my cross. We all have crosses to bear and we are all suffering a cross. It might not be the same kind of cross, but much of the pain and the suffering and even the oppression and the judgmentalness comes from me judging you out of my cross and you judging me out of your cross. We all are called to bear the burden one of another. As I told you, that's why I went down to the street. I am called. I am commanded 
to suffer the cross of my fellow believer, even if it's not my cross. And yet I'm also called to remember that that though my cross might be unique to me, and I don't know what your cross is out there today. Maybe you didn't grow up in a, uh, maybe you did grow up in a white privilege situation where you don't suffer the cross of a minority, particularly one that has a history the way that our African-American friends do and how that inclined them towards all these other things. But you may suffer a unique suffering of an illness. Maybe a unique suffering of a marriage. Maybe a unique suffering of a wayward child. Maybe a unique suffering of, and I could go on and on and on. Brothers and sisters, I don't care who you're looking at, life happens. I know that. If I know anything from 30 years of ministry, life happens. And everyone's got crosses they're bearing, where they've been unjustly treated, where they've been unjustly slandered, where on and on it goes. And man, it's important to listen to that to have solidarity with each other and to get on each other's side as brothers and sisters in Christ. Even if you haven't, to repent, even if you haven't done it yourself, to repent with respect to solidarity to your race that you would say, yes, we have done this wrong and I stand with you. And it goes all ways though. It can never be a one-way show for reconciliation to happen. Well, finally, when they go low, we go high. I don't have the time. I know it's been a long sermon as these sermons have tended to be, but it's just hard to say it all. But I'll just say it simply. The most prominent sermon, and he preached it a lot, that Martin Luther King preached, was that sermon. It's the most preached sermon he ever preached. I don't know if you know this. It's love your enemy. Love your enemy. They go low, you go high. Go look it up on Google. He's got about 100 versions of it. Read one of them. It's powerful. Amen.